You're listening to the CXMH Podcast. CXMH is a podcast at the intersection of faith and mental health. Hey, welcome back to the show. My name is Robert Bohr, and I'm a therapist, and we are joined, as always, by my co-host, Professor of Social Work, Dr. Holly Oxhandler. Holly, how are you doing? Hey, Robert. I'm doing great. How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm sorry. I meant Holly Oxygen. Is what I meant. And Robert War. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, whichever one those folks that are confused. There was a, a service that popped up and said, Hey, we well, it pairs with our hosting and they said, Oh, we're gonna offer free uh, transcriptions and that's mm-hmm. something I've wanted to do for a while yeah. to help make the show more accessible. So it automatically did, you know, the last six episodes or something, and they are Pretty funny. Inaccurate. Yes. Yeah, they are very funny. <laughs> so we've got some new superhero names for us out of yeah, yeah. that. It, yeah. It, uh, transcribed. I'm always introducing Holly Oxygen. I think one of them was Holly Oxidizer. Yes, that's so right. Yeah. And then there was a, there was a bunch for me. That, I know. I Robert Bork was one of them. Uh-huh. Robert War, Robert, all sorts of things. Oh, my gosh. I know. I'm like I'm just thinking that we've got some some content for Steve. Too bad, Steve. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, Sorry, Steve. Yeah. No, it was awesome. It was fun seeing That's that. Great. Yeah. Well, how are you doing? It's been uh, two weeks since we've yeah. caught up formally on the air. I know. No, I've been really good, Robert. Things have been great. I mean, it's, you know, Texas is it's pretty beautiful out here these days. So that's nice. But we've been good. But yeah, just pretty busy. But um, yeah. yeah. But I want to first start with you because you guys had a very special birthday in your family recently. So, yeah. Yeah, Gray turned one on Good Friday, actually. So, the day after that, we had a little party, which I think we talked about. Mm -hmm. I invited you last time we recorded. Yep, I Uh, actually got the invite. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, which uh, you didn't come, but that's good. Yeah, sorry, friend. Sorry. Cool, cool, cool. Um, no, it was great. It, it was a lot of fun. Uh, he smashed a little cupcake. I mean, he ate it. We did. We did one cupcake instead of a whole cake. Uh huh. Um, just to you know, kind of limit the um, frosting amount and all that. Yes. The mess to clean up. Um, yes. But we had a little fiesta, and there was a little sombrero for him. Um, things like that. That's awesome. I know you sent me the pictures, and they are super cute. I mean. I, the, the decorations that y'all did, even the little like taco bada party thing that you had on, above him was just, they were just so cute and so creative. So I can't, I can't take too much credit for, I, I help make the vision happen you uh-huh. know? You- <laughs> for things like that. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, he was super cute in the pictures too. So, um, yeah. And yeah. I need to send you some uh, videos because he <gasps> yes. can walk ish. What? Are you kidding? I'm not. So oh. he can uh, he can take like double digit steps by himself now. Oh my god! But he still can't like stand up on his own, uh-huh. and he's still pretty wobbly. But still, he'll if he like pulls himself up on our, the couch on one side of the room, say, and then he'll turn around and he'll walk all the way across the room to the different couch or something oh. like that. You know. So 
God, you know, like the middle chunk of walking down. Yes, for the most part. If he's like tired, he won't do it and stuff like that. Obviously, but um, yeah, he's getting there. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, that won't last for long. He'll be off and going pretty soon, and th- yeah. that makes me so excited to see y'all this summer and to be able to see him walking. And oh my gosh, it's just awesome. Oh, yeah, that's good. Well, hey, let me ask you because we were talking right before this, uh-huh. and this is something that I feel like a lot of people, uh, you know, are are. I don't want to say struggling with, but it's something that, that I am, you know, pretty consistently trying to work through. And you mentioned it. And I know a lot of people, particularly in kind of the millennial generation, have like multiple jobs, kind of this like freelance type thing, or they're like doing a lot of side projects, right? So you yeah. were talking a little bit ago about having all these different things in your head, you know, kind of this like spinning plates mentality, but just all these things yes. in your head that are important. They're all good things. But they're all, you know, you you don't just say, here's my to-do list of my one thing at work and then I'm done, right? No. Like, how do you navigate <laughs> or balance all that? I mean, oh. how, do you, how do you keep all that straight? Oh, man, friend. I wish I could. You know, I will say that I have had to learn a system that works for me most days. Not perfectly every day, but it's been a lot of fumbling and testing and trying and figure out what works But sorting through, you know, just kind of keeping it straight. I mean, A, we could go back to our episode on planners, right? With (laughs) So there's that. So having a planner that works for me is helpful. But I also have, you know, like a notebook where I have um, like a page that, you know, as you and I were just talking about some ideas earlier, like I was jotting them down um, and I try to keep, you know, some kind of overarching to-dos or ideas I'd like to see implemented with different topics or areas or projects that I'm working on, you know, I kind of have like a brain dump page basically for each project, if that makes sense. So, and, you know, and I try to chunk out time as much as I can to have a rhythm. So, you know, for me, writing is, you know, one of the first things that I try to do each morning so that if, you know, if the rest of the day falls apart, at least I got my writing done, um, which is, you know, kind of the, the thing that I love to do the most. Mm. And at least I'm moving forward on that. But it's, you know, it's it's just having as many rhythms and routines and knowing that like Thursdays I'm home and I'm writing and catching up on projects. And, you know, Tuesdays, I mean, you and I have talked about this. Mondays and Tuesdays are meeting days for me and I'm in meetings all yeah. day. And so I know like yeah. I'm not getting anything done. Um, for the most part, those days, and but you know, just I always, I always end up sending you a text like, partway through <laughs> Tuesday morning, and right after I send it, I think um, it's you're Tuesday, like it's Tuesday. So. Oh no, yeah, yeah, yeah. after that tomorrow, which is totally fine. Yeah, no, 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 that's awesome. But I, you know, I just try as best I can to keep some kind of running list of to dos, and I keep a notebook with those running to do's. And I usually have a page in there for like the month. So like, what are my main goals for that month moving forward? What are tasks I need to to ask someone else to do and making sure that I kind of keep that list going of things that, you know, that others can do so that I remember I don't have to do it all myself. Um, mm, yeah, that's really important. But yeah, anyways, I don't know. But it's it's a it is a one day at a time friend, you know? Yeah. Well, I think that's good to hear for, I think that's good to hear for a lot of folks. So people like myself who are kind of like freshly into whatever it is, like the job setting or potentially not even, they would say in a job setting, right? Uh, To hear someone who 
is more established career wise, right? So, I mean, you have a PhD, so you're like a big fancy pants. Mm-mm. But you still no. <laughs> are saying, hey, it's not perfect every day. It's not like, you know, you're you're the only one who lets things slip or thinks, oh, I wish I could have gotten to that or anything oh, like that. Gosh, you know, no, that's yeah. kind of where most of us are. And you add in relationships and kids and yeah. side projects like this show, right? And so trying yeah. to navigate that. I mean, the amount of times that you and I say, oh, we're, we're going to record this intro. Can we push it a bit? Can we do it here? Let's do it this day. You know, yeah. the amount of time that we do that is tons. And that's, you know, just trying to be flexible about that. But yeah, I think that's, good. I think that's helpful. Well, yeah, absolutely. And I think having people around you who who understand that and who know it and as best as you can to be able to communicate to them, you know, what you need, as you were saying, how you and I sometimes have to be like, hey, can we push it back a little bit? Or, you know, hey, can we reschedule this? I mean, that's super important. But I think for me, one of the most, I mean, I think the thing that has saved me the most is just making sure that I'm writing down kind of my overarching, what do I need to do this month? Um, and keeping that list somewhere so that I don't have to take up cognitive space in my brain to try to remember mm. those things because it won't, I won't remember them. So if yeah. I can list out, okay, here's what I need to do this month. And then, you know, each day kind of sit down and say, okay, what are, what are the to do's that I need to do today? And for me to do that and write down what I need before I start having everybody telling me what they need from me. I think that's mm. really important too. So yeah. getting clear on what I need to to get done and what only I'm able to do before everybody else says, oh, hey, I need you to do this and this and this. Because if I'm not clear on what I need to do, then other people have no problem of telling me <laughs> what I need to do. So, yeah. you know, yeah. so I think that's important. Yeah. But no, that's good. Yeah. So, nice. yeah. Oh, cool. Oh, hey, can I tell you one other thing, too? Before we no. shift into this? No, I know. Well, yes, I'm going to anyways. So I know you had posted earlier about being – you had mentioned about the car, little hiccup earlier, and about being a two. Um, yeah, yeah. And that desire to want to even help the the car tech or the yeah, – you know. Yeah, to put context to it, I tweeted something about – so I'm standing there in my driveway. My car wouldn't start this morning, and the guy comes to tow it, right? And he's like hooking it up and doing all this stuff that he does for a living. I clearly – I mean, I don't know – very much about cars whatsoever. And I'm standing there, you know, in skinny jeans and like a button down. And, I, and, <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh, I should do something. Like, I can't just stand here and watch this guy tow my car. So, you know, I said, hey, is there anything I can do to help? Which like, clearly there's not really. Right. I, I mean, like, I don't, I'm not like hooking things up or whatever. Uh, but just that desire to help and say like, ah, oh, it's really uncomfortable for me to stand here and like watch somebody work. Yes. It's so interesting how our personality like comes out in those little moments like that, right? Like how, I mean, I think it's great. I love that you tweeted that out though, because so many of us were like, yep, got it. I totally understand. That was, it was a surprising amount of like responses pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I love it. Well, it was, it reminded me. So I know, so we had, we celebrated Sweet Gray's birthday on Friday and then mm-hmm. I had celebrated my birthday on Tuesday this week. So I'm going to drop in a birthday song right here. Nope. <laughs> well, uh, if, if you want to sing it, you're welcome to. No, I'm going to drop in like a recording. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's raining tacos. <laughs> Anyways. Well, so what I was thinking about though, you had, so you had posted that about the car and being a two. And one of the things that I learned really well on my birthday this year that 
you know, just for those listeners out there who also identify as type two, um, I just want to remind you or let, I guess offer some encouragement that I understand how hard it is to receive that love. And as a two, we're really good at giving other people love, but sometimes it's really difficult to receive it. And Robert, it was so sweet this year. Like the, all these little notes and messages, it was like, I mean, I ended my birthday feeling like I was on top of the world with the love and graciousness and kindness and just sweet, sweet messages that, that folks had sent my way. And um, including some of our listeners. So, so for yeah. those who li- who are listening, thank you very much for the sweet little notes that you sent me on my birthday. But it just it was just a really sweet day, and it was a sweet reminder as a two how much growth there is in our own journey to learn how to love ourselves well. And mm. um, and it, yeah. So, anyways, yeah. yeah, it was a, it was a good day. So. Well, happy belated birthday. Wow. Well, thank you, friend. Well, you told me happy birthday on my day, on, like, oh, on the true. actual day. Yeah. So, and I love that Gray and I are only like a few days apart in our birthdays. So, yeah. You know, can, maybe next year, you know, a little joint birthday party. Uh, let's do it. Let's plan okay. it. We're we'll send out invites way. to all of our listeners, too. Yeah. How's that nice. sound? There you go. We'll record <laughs> the whole thing. That's awesome. And Will you make tacos yeah. again, too? I. Will literally always make tacos. Always. <laughs> That's awesome. Oh, okay, should we start talking about this episode? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, hey, for the interview. Yes. This is the first part of a two-part interview that we did with Dr. Steven Gersovich, who is a psychiatrist who works with children and adolescents. I mean, he's the author of a book called Mental Health and the Church, which we talk a good bit about mm-hmm. uh, stuff from that, right? He He's the founder of Key Ministry. So we talked about all sorts of things. But in this first part, we focus mostly on what the topic of that book was, which is uh, how to have a more inclusive ministries, right? So church settings, things like that. What are the barriers aside from just people like stigma and things that we normally talk about, right? But mm-hmm. what are really practical barriers that often we don't think about in terms of people with mental health challenges or struggles or like their family or things like that, that Mm -hmm. very practical things that make church or attending small groups or or any of those things uh, less possible for families and individuals and things like that. And then, and then what we can do about that. No, I thought I'm, I'm really excited for our listeners to get to hear this one and the one the week after, I think both of them. Yeah. They're just, they're really great. So Yeah. 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 Well, next week, you if you're listening this week, make sure you're subscribed and all that, because next week we're going to talk, uh, it's the second half of this conversation, but we talk about children's mental health mm-hmm. in a variety of settings because he is a children a, a psychiatrist that works with children and adolescents. And so yep. um, we're going to kick off May that, that way, but yeah. um, make sure you're subscribed and, and all that stuff. Yeah. All right. Well... Here is our episode with Dr. Steven Gersovich. Hey, today we are so excited to be joined by Dr. Steven Gersovich. He serves as the founder and president of Key Ministry. He is a child and adolescent psychiatrist who combines over 25 years of knowledge gained through clinical practice and teaching with extensive research experience evaluating medications prescribed to children and teens for things like ADHD, anxiety, and depression. 
He is also a presenter all over the place, a previous recipient of the Exemplary Psychiatrist Award from the National Alliance on Mental Illness. He's also a blogger, an author. His book, Mental Health and the Church, a ministry handbook for including children and adults with ADHD, anxiety, mood disorders, and other common mental health conditions came out last year, 2018. He's also does some radio work, I believe, and a frequent speaker at a variety of events. He lives in Ohio with his wife, has two daughters. Uh, I think that's, I think I've covered a lot of it. Uh, Steve, how are you doing today? Well, I'm honored that you and Holly are gracious enough to invite me to join you on your podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Is there, uh, aside from that fancy bio there that I pulled off your website, uh, anything else that the audience should know about you that you, you want us to know? I think you covered it pretty well. You know, I'm just thankful that Jesus allowed me to live long enough to see a Cleveland team win a championship and make it to a victory parade. <laughs> I actually, I was going to ask because the last line of that says, Steve's work serves as a distraction from the abysmal performance of Cleveland's <laughs> professional sports teams. And I was going to say, you've got to be feeling a little bit better about at least the NFL now, right? Well... You know, some people are optimistic. If you're a true Browns fan, you assume that Baker Mayfield's going to blow out his knee sometime between now and the beginning of the football season. <laughs> so that, you know, we have an expression up here, and it's that Jesus loves you, but he hates Cleveland. Oh my gosh, that's so funny. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. That's amazing. Mm. Well, hey, I think I think the Browns are headed the right direction. So I'm optimistic for you, but I don't live there. So I guess I can do that. Well, uh, to start with, I'd love to hear why why you're so passionate about the intersection of the church and mental health, right? Like what led you to start this ministry and write this book and do all the work that you've been doing around these areas? So it was probably a little over 20 years ago when I found myself serving on the elder board of the church that my family and I attend. And we we're having a board meeting. And around this time, we had a number of highly committed families from within the church go over, and this was after the fall of the Iron Curtain, go to orphanages in Russia and Bulgaria. And they brought back some kids with complex trauma and some pretty serious you know, emotional, behavioral, developmental disabilities. And a woman named Libby Peterson, who ended up like subsequently becoming like a member of our board, was a children's ministry director at the time. And so Libby came in and was speaking to the elders of the church about some of the steps that the folks in children's ministry were taking to support the families who had adopted these kids. Because these folks were stalwart families of the church. These were people in leadership positions. These were people who were key volunteers. They were active in small groups. And after they had adopted these kids and these children had entered their families, they were having a very hard time staying involved with church. Getting to worship services was a challenge. Maintaining their volunteer roles was a challenge. Staying involved as part of a small group was a challenge. So I'm sitting here listening to this. And at the time, was running a fairly sizable private child and adolescent mental health practice in the suburbs of Cleveland. And I was thinking to myself, I wonder to what extent this is a problem for the kinds of families coming through our practice. And so for probably a three-month period of time, not in a formal way that we would collect data as if we were submitting it to a journal, 
But, you know, as families would come in for their follow-up appointments, I just asked them, does the problem that led you to our practice interfere in any way with your ability to attend church or be involved at your place of worship? And I was horrified by the stuff that I heard Mm. in that the kinds of things that we would see in a child and adolescent mental health practice. And so the most common things that we would treat are probably anxiety, ADHD, depression, kids on the high end of the autism spectrum, trauma, I was shocked to appreciate the extent to which having a child with these kinds of challenges became an obstacle to families being able to be part of church. And so, mm-hmm. so interestingly enough, you know, as God would orchestrate things, uh, shortly thereafter, I was involved with one of the early research studies on Adderall. And, you know, as that became the most popular medication in the United States for ADHD, I was asked quite often. I ended up traveling around the country, doing a lot of grand rounds, speaking, teaching. And I would mention something wherever I went to speak about some of the work that our church was doing in this arena. And they started getting inundated with requests for help. So back in 2002, as a result of this obvious need, we had started key ministry. And our original focus at that time was on helping churches welcome and include families who had kids with what we called, quote unquote, hidden disabilities. So some Mm -hmm. emotional, behavioral, developmental, neurologic condition where there weren't outwardly apparent physical symptoms. Mm -hmm. So that back at that time, as a church, you know, Johnny and Friends ministry, you know, had grown significantly. And the church was doing a pretty good job in terms of recognizing the needs of folks with physical disabilities. Around that time, as the explosion in the diagnosis of autism occurred, the church began to get better at dealing with what we would consider special needs. You know, kids on the deep end of the autism spectrum, kids with significant developmental or intellectual disabilities, adults with intellectual disabilities. The one void that has remained and and a big part of what we try to address through our ministry are these other hidden disabilities and in particular mental health disabilities because the the vast preponderance of kids who would qualify for having a disability in the United States, about three out of four school-age kids with a disability have a primary mental health disability. And the mm-hmm. sense that this was that this was a an area you know where the church was severely missing out in terms of recognizing the need and having a strategy for outreach and a strategy for inclusion. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's mm. really, that's good. That's And I mean, clearly you've done a t- tremendous amount of work um, with key ministry. And I love hearing that background on, on like how you kind of came to this and identifying the need within the church and then shifting to, okay, well, how do we help other churches in this way? And even going so far as to recognize, you know, how families were struggling and being able to be involved in church, or, um, which, you know, we know is an important area of many people's lives. And 
because of these struggles. So, um, so I really want to commend you for that and the amount of work that you've done in this area. Well, thank you. And, yeah. and interestingly enough, knowing that you're into research, there's a study <laughs> that was published within the last year that has been really helpful to us in having something concrete to share with church leaders about the extent to which this is a problem. And mm-hmm. so last summer, there's um, a sociologist named Andrew Whitehead from Clemson, who actually has two sons on the autism spectrum, who set out to look at the question of how different chronic health conditions in children and teens impact their family's attendance at religious services. And so that he, he came up with sort of an interesting methodology that he did a deep dive into data that the federal government collects in something called the National Survey of Children's Health. And so that they do these very large samples of 100,000 or so families around the country at like three to five year intervals. And they ask them, you know, very detailed interview, collecting lots of information. And so that one of the things that they use a study for is to develop prevalence estimates for the CDC in terms of how common specific disabilities are in kids. And interestingly enough, one of the questions that they ask as part of this survey is whether or not the family has attended a church or a place of worship at any point mm. in time in the last year. So, so he looked at three cuts of this data. And what they found was that the, the disability that was most common or most likely to keep a family from ever setting foot in a church was having a child with autism and that 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 increased by 84% the odds that a family would never set foot in church. Oh wow. But, but right behind that we have depression, conduct disorder, mm-hmm. anxiety disorders, oppositional defiant disorder, ADHD. So that w- when they were examining this that the the the, the vast preponderance of kids with a disability that the families identified as, you know, there's a relationship or that the families identified never having attended church when a child with this disability, it was primarily mental health disabilities. Because it was interesting when they were looking at the conditions that weren't associated with any decrease in church attendance, asthma, diabetes, a child with Tourette's disorder, epilepsy, hearing problems, vision problems, intellectual disability, which has been the primary focus of what the church has described as special needs ministry and cerebral palsy. Mm, wow, man. And so, so the, one of the things, you know, you asked, well, why am I passionate about this? Well, you know, my family, we've been blessed to be part of a great church where we've had wonderful teaching, had an opportunity to serve. My wife and I have been part of a small group now that's going on like 31 years. And I just want for other families the ability to be able to have the same experience at church that my family is able to have. You know, and unfortunately, if you look at this, you know, the research, and this is you know, a pretty big sample size when you're looking at interviews with 100,000 families over three different cycles of this particular data set, this is a big issue in terms of mental health being a significant barrier to families being able to be a part of church. 
Yeah, absolutely. Man, that's really good. Well, I, since we're talking about this, I thought maybe I would kind of throw a curveball in this and flip flop the way that my, I had my questions laid out because we're talking about this and I think it's so good and it transitions beautifully into the type of stuff that you wrote about in your book, right? So your book, Mental Health in the Church, focuses a lot on how do we create inclusive spaces in church settings or faith community settings, right? Uh, for people who are experiencing the types of things that you're talking about there, right? So anxiety, depression, uh, ADHD, and you talk about a number of barriers. I think it's it's seven, right? Barriers to church attendance uh, and then how to kind of counteract those. I mean, obviously you don't want to necessarily probably, you know, go in depth on all seven, but can you talk some about that type of thing? And then we'll maybe get to what we were planning on talking about after that. Sure. So one of the questions that would come up is, well, why would it be so hard, you know, for a family with a child with one of these mental health conditions to be part of church? And and a way of thinking about this is that there are certain attributes that are associated with common mental health conditions that make participation in certain church activities more challenging. You know, and as you touched on with the book, seven specific barriers would be the stigma associated with mental illness, anxiety, one's capacity for self-control, sensory processing differences, challenges with social communication, the social isolation that goes along with being a family who has a child with a significant mental health condition, and then finally the the family experience of church in that a lot of, you know, one of the things that we find out real quick in child psychiatry school is that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. <laughs> and so that, you know, kids with mental health concerns very often have parents with mental health concerns. And so that oftentimes if the parents had difficulty being part of church, you get into these multi-generational kinds of patterns where, you know, folks aren't, you know, they aren't familiar with what it means to be part of a church and the, the blessings that go along with that. So so you think about like some of these attributes that are associated with mental illness, and you think about the way that they clash with church culture. And what I mean by that is that we who are part of the church have certain expectations for how people are going to act when we gather together. So that, you know, for example, one of the families who had been involved in the early days of our church's ministry got up at a disability ministry Sunday service and talked about what their experience had been like trying to find a church in suburban Cleveland when they had two young sons with pretty severe ADHD. Mm. And the comment that the mom made is that people in the church believe that they can tell when a disability ends and bad parenting begins. Oh my gosh. You know, so that now you think about this in the church that, you know, we, we anticipate that, Folks, you know, folks who are going to church, you know, are going to be people who do pretty well, you know, at self-control. And that oftentimes that capacity is a sign of spiritual maturity. Or you think about how intensely social churches can be and that the focus is trying to get people integrated into community to get them to be part of a small group. Imagine what it's like for someone with social anxiety, who 
may have or may be prone to having different cognitive distortions or thinking errors where they assume that other people are scrutinizing them or judging them harshly. What's it like yeah. for them the first time that they're walking into a church where they're meeting six to 10 unfamiliar people yeah. and they find that one of the expectations for being part of a church is being part of a small group with eight to 12 strangers where self-disclosure is something that's expected? Or mm. what do you do if you walk into a church and you have a condition that impacts your ability to be able to pick up on body language, facial expression, tone of voice, inflection of voice, so that, you know, if you have a condition that impacts your ability to be able to process that sort of information, navigating church from a social standpoint becomes extraordinarily difficult. And so it's these two sets of things together, that there are certain traits that are associated with a variety of common mental health conditions that clash with our expectations of how we think people will act and interact and fit in at church that causes this to be a big problem. Hmm. Yeah. And then when we're not trained to understand some of those differences or to have empathy or understanding or um, that just adds this whole other layer on top of it, I'm sure. Well, yeah, absolutely. And one of the challenges that churches deal with in serving this population is that in part because of the stigma, in part because of other people's experiences, folks who have these issues, one, aren't going to self-disclose that they need support to anyone. And the other piece, and, and this is especially true that I find with kids, is that they desperately want to be treated just like everyone else. Yeah. So that if you try to put them into some sort of special program or special ministry, they will flee anything that draws attention to them as being different. Hmm. Well, and the parent, or, and I think about the parents too, and how the parents are probably navigating that sense of, you know, belonging and not wanting, you know, a sense of difference and, you know, and, oh man, it is definitely tricky, 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 huh? Well, I touched on before the issue you get into with families with social isolation. Right. And and if you have a kid with a serious mental health condition, one, it becomes a lot more difficult to find babysitters in childcare so that those parents are less likely to be going out to dinner with their neighbors, ending up in situations where they're meeting other people who are connected with the church who might invite them to church. We know that kids in general with mental health issues are more likely to have other conditions where, you know, they're less likely statistically to be involved in athletics and other sorts of extracurricular activities where, you know, families are going to come in contact with other families. You think about the experience of having a child with depression where, they may not want to get out of the house or a kid who has chronic issues with anxiety that causes them to avoid lots and lots of different situations. Families easily become very socially isolated. And one of the things that we found that's been really interesting is that for a time, we had been working with a number of churches throughout the Midwest to develop respite care for families who have kids with disabilities. And people think about this as being a special needs outreach. 
but in the churches that we were serving, the majority of families who were taking advantage of that type of free respite care offered through churches had children with a primary mental health disability as opposed to kids with autism or cerebral palsy or some sort of physical disability. Hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, and that, that makes sense to me in terms of how hard it is. You know, people say, oh, just get plugged into, you know, church. And what they mean is like, join a small group and go to this thing and go to this thing. Right. But I mean, it makes sense that if you're not, you're not looking to make friends if you're just trying to stay afloat, you know? So like if, if there's so much more going on, then maybe you're not saying, oh yeah, it's super important that we go to a small group when it's so much harder to get a babysitter or things like that. So let me ask, obviously, if, if you're interested in this topic, definitely go pick up Steve's book. Uh, it talks in depth about these, but so then it sounds like all the, all the barriers that you've talked about, right? Largely, uh, I mean, you've touched on kind of when we think about church culture, like what, what do you do at church? Well, you go to, you know, your big main thing that maybe is, is loud with lights or, you know, sensory things mm. that is yeah. a lot of people, <laughs> you go into a small group, you get, so, so what do we do without saying, okay, we're going to throw out everything, or maybe we do throw out everything. I mean, you know, so if I'm, if I'm listening and I work in a church, I say, okay, I, I acknowledge as a problem now, what do we do? Okay. So first off, one of the things to think about is that good mental health inclusion is going to involve strategies that are going to benefit everybody in the church. Mm. And that this, is, this isn't going to be a program. It's a mindset. And it involves for the church leaders thinking about what are some of the attributes or some of the challenges in the environments in which I do ministry and what are some ways that 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 we as a team can look at removing some of the things or minimizing some of the things that would likely be challenges so part of what we've been working with churches around is the idea of developing a mental health inclusion strategy and so some of the steps that a church would want to do with this is that after getting sign off from senior leadership which you need to do to make progress with anything of significance in a church. You think about putting together an inclusion team. And ideally, this probably involves someone involved with leadership in every different area of ministry or department in the church. And that mental health ministry, by definition, has to be family ministry. Because if mom or dad have some sort of mental health concern where they're challenged to be part of a church, None of their children are going to get to be part of church. Mm. You have to be able to you have to be able to deal with whatever support needs the grown-ups are going to have, as well as whatever needs children of any age are going to have being being able to be part of church. So that it's also important to keep in mind that you know that, that while we think about sort of this figure that probably twenty percent of kids and adults in the United States have a serious enough mental health issue that they're in need of some sort of treatment at any given point in time. All of these folks have family members who may not necessarily have a mental health issue, but don't get to be part of church when this is something that one or more members of a family struggle with. So that part of the win of this kind of ministry is that whenever any family member of an individual with mental health struggles 
is able to have a meaningful experience or interaction with a local church, that's a win. So, so part of this is setting up a team. And this could involve people from different areas of ministry within the church. It could involve um, someone who's highly reputable within the church, like a, a pastor, an elder, someone who's been a very visible volunteer who has personal experience with mental health concerns. It might involve um, having, for example, an interior designer looking at ways in which the spaces in which ministry takes place could be modified to make them more welcoming to folks with mental health struggles. Something simple that you wouldn't think about in terms of the signage in a church. So that if if someone has issues with ADHD, or if they're struggling with depression or anxiety, where that impacts upon their executive functioning or their memory, trying to remember multi-step directions in an unfamiliar place to figure out where you're supposed to go is something that would be very challenging. So so that one piece of this would be putting together ministry team, would also be putting together um, a team to look at the physical attributes of the spaces or the environments in which ministry is taking place and see what can be done to make mm-hmm. those more friendly. So, yeah. for example, like, a, like if you have a child with an executive functioning deficit, if they have ADHD, the more information that they have to process at any given point in time, the harder a time that they're going to have maintaining self-control. So that the worship services that may be energizing for some kids might be overwhelming to kids who have more of those kinds of struggles or kids who've been maybe traumatized where that's had impact on how their brain has developed. Mm. So, so you want to think about the things that go on in these different, you know, in, in, in the different spaces in which you do ministry. Um, the third strategy is focusing on those particular activities that the church leadership sees as being most critical for spiritual growth. So if you're at a church where being part of a small group is something that is considered a key component of that church's discipleship strategy, training certain small group leaders on how to welcome with sensitivity folks who may have different mental health concerns and challenges into that group and how to engage them in the group so that it doesn't become so anxiety provoking or overwhelming that they feel the urge to leave would be something that would be very important. If if part of yeah. what that church is about is serving, and if it's by volunteering in the community or going on a mission trip, you start thinking about, well, what are some of the challenges that folks with mental health concerns might have doing that? You try to remove those barriers. If it's coming to your worship service on the weekend and hearing your wonderful pastor teach, you have to start thinking about, well, what are some of the ways that we can make worship easier, attending a service easier for folks with a full range of disabilities? Mm-hmm. Another real key strategy is developing a churchwide communication plan for how you're going to talk about mental illness. There's a fascinating study that was done about five years ago by Lifeway Research when they they surveyed a thousand or they I think that they had surveyed it was several a thousand pastors and several hundred families both inside and outside the church who had experiences with 
an adult in the family having a serious mental illness, either um, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, or major depression. And one of the things that they found when they surveyed people who didn't regularly attend church was that more than half of the folks that they surveyed, 55%, were of the belief that people with mental health struggles aren't welcome at church. Oh, gosh. One in five folks who regularly attend church every week are of the belief that folks with mental health struggles aren't welcome. Mm. So that one of the things that we need to do if we're going to do effective outreach in this area is that we need to be able to change the perception in the larger community about whether churches will be welcoming. Um, yeah. One of the yeah. one of the things that we also need to do is that we need to give folks permission to be able to talk about this who are in church and are struggling with these issues. So that when they when they surveyed the family members of folks with significant mental illness, what they wanted most, or what they said that they wanted most from their churches, was that they wanted their pastors to talk about mental illness from the pulpit. Yep, and you know, you you look at that finding, and in the same survey, they found that roughly two-thirds of pastors m- referred to mental illness or mental health concerns in their sermons either never or only once a year, yeah. and there's a huge disconnect there. So, so good inclusion involves, you know, talking about this from the pulpit. Um, there was a large church in... Texas, interestingly enough, where we were going and doing some training lately. And it was interesting that after doing a training on Saturday and attending the worship service on Sunday, the first thing that the pastor prayed for when they got to, you know, the formal prayer during the worship service was to pray for everyone in attendance who might be struggling with depression. Mm. Simply, you know, simply doing something as simple as that makes it clear to folks attending the church that they have permission to talk about it. That's right. Oh, that's so good. We, I mean, I know you are absolutely preaching to the choir with Robert and I here, (laughs) no pun intended, Um, but just with, you know, with this. And we did, I definitely want to remind our listeners, we had an episode a while back with um, Pastor Mary Alice Birdwhistle, where she actually provided a sermon talking about mental health and just almost as like an example of one way in which you can preach about mental health from the pulpit and what that does for those in attendance. And she talked about, you know, once she, she did bring it up and um, like how her congregation had responded. But you're absolutely right. I mean, it it needs to be brought up and from that, you know, powerful position as the pastor um, to normalize and let folks know, hey, this is something that's okay. In the same way we would bring you a casserole if you got back from the hospital from an accident, you know, how are we wrapping around and, and caring for those in the um, in the congregation, and you know, who are struggling with with mental health concerns too. So, yeah. And one thing I was going to point out: the very for episode one of this podcast, way back in January of 2017, was actually with Scott McConnell of mm. Lifeway Research, going through uh-huh. this exact study. Like that was episode one to try and say, okay, where are we with all this? So you can, there's, we'll link to it, but 
that's awesome that you bring it up because that was like the launch of this show started with that exact study. And that's awesome. And I think, didn't they mention in that study too, or it might be another one that I'm thinking of where most folks, when they do begin to have symptoms of mental illness, the first person that they tend to go to is their faith leader. And they're usually going to them asking for prayer or for, you know, you know, just for support. Um, But they're actually the, I think it's the Lifeway study. Isn't that right? Am I making that up? Oh, maybe it's not. not sure. I know there's a couple of studies. Yeah, yeah there, that, there are yeah. other studies that have addressed that. It's it's also okay. interesting that I've seen some research where um, some of this is a geographic thing. Like if you get into the south and in the southeast, yes, yep. Where there there are certain areas of the country, in fact, where primary care docs are significantly less likely to refer to mental health professionals. And where there's a correlation between, you know, the 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 more docs attend church, the less likely they are to make mental health referrals. And I think that again, in in some areas of the church and some parts of the country, you know, particularly among people who are devout believers, that there's a certain mistrust of the mental health profession that has been propagated and in some circles of the church encouraged by church leaders. Hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And I think even in all the things that you're saying, which again, if you want more in depth of all these seven barriers and then some strategies to address them, definitely check out um, Steve's book. But one of the, in all of these, I would say something important is like listening to the families, right? Talking to those individuals and the families that you're trying to accommodate, not just what you think is best for them, right? Because we're talking about this LifeWay study and one of the most interesting uh, statistics, I went and found it because I remember every time I read it, it sticks out to me, is that 68% of pastors say that they care for people, they care for mentally ill people in their uh, congregations by maintaining a list of experts to refer people to, but only 28% of the family members that they surveyed said they did. So there's a a pretty huge gap between what you think you're offering and what people know you're offering, right? So talking to the individuals and their families and saying, hey, what is it that you need? What would be helpful? And that plays right into everything that you're saying, because if someone says, well, this setting, this sign, this, you know, isn't good for me, then, you know, there's no way to know that unless you're Mm -hmm. you're talking with people and and engaging them. I don't, we won't do a formal like closing on this one. I think we'll just kind of just let it um, fade. That's (laughs) That's fine. Just do the little whoop, whoop, whoop. (laughs) Thanks for listening to the CXMH podcast. Want to score some major brownie points? Leave us five stars and an honest review on iTunes. Follow us on social media at CXMH Podcast and email us with questions, comments, and interview requests at CXMHpodcast at gmail.com. A final note. If you're in a dark place today, struggling with suicidal thoughts, you are not alone. Professional help is available 24-7 at 1-800-273-8255.